The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hi, I'm Rob Sear, and a columnist with Breaking Views, and I'm here with John Carrier, investigative reporter of the Wall Street Journal. He's here to talk about his book, Bad Blood. It's the extraordinary story of the rise and fall of Theranos, a healthcare firm started by a Stanford dropout, which soared to a $9 billion valuation at its peak. There was just one hitch. The company's technology never worked. So, John, you've won two Pulitzer Prizes for past investigative work. How did you come across this story, and when did you know it was a big story? So uh, the first sign that something was off, I would say, mm-hmm. that I picked up on was a profile of Elizabeth Holmes that was published in December of 2014 in the New Yorker magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of things in that story that, that seemed off to me. I had a lot of experience covering healthcare and medicine. And um, this notion that this college dropout who had dropped out with just two semesters of chemical engineering classes under her belt and then gone on to pioneer groundbreaking new laboratory science seemed off to me. Um, You know, obviously that's happened with uh, programming Mm -hmm. and computers. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg learned how to code on his dad's computer when he was 10 years old, but you can't really do that in medicine. You know, there's a reason that most Nobel Prizes in in medicine win their prizes in their 60s. Uh, You need the formal training and you need to then add value uh, spending years, you know, on research. So I thought that was odd. But to be fair, I probably wouldn't have done anything with it uh, if I hadn't been approached a month later by a tipster. And a tipster was actually a a guy I'd spoken to before. Um, He's a practicing pathologist in Columbia, Missouri. And he had read the New Yorker story, too. And since he knew a thing or two about blood testing, by the way, he also moonlighted as the author of an obscure blog called Pathology Blog. Mm -hmm. When he saw the New Yorker story, he was immediately skeptical, especially about the claim that you could do so many tests off just a tiny uh, pinprick of blood. And so he wrote a a short skeptical item on his blog Mm -hmm. and was pretty much immediately contacted by a little band of Theranos skeptics one of whom was a childhood neighbor of Elizabeth and the Holmes family who had been involved in this strange patent feud uh, with her and uh, who was convinced that the whole company was a fraud and, and that the whole edifice was a fraud. And it so happened that this guy, Richard Fuse, the childhood neighbor, had just made contact with the Theranos laboratory director who had just left the company. And so when the pathology blogger put me in touch with Fuse, and I heard from Fuse that he had just made contact with a laboratory director from Theranos who was alleging all manner of wrongdoing, I thought, aha, Mm -hmm. this story may have legs. But of course, I needed to sort of pull on the string, so to speak, and get to the primary source, which I eventually did. Source was terrified he was being hounded by Boyce Schiller attorneys, uh, Boyce Schiller Flexner, the law firm of the famous lawyer David Boyce, was hired by Theranos, and it was threatening him with litigation. And and so um, he would only agree to talk to me if I granted him confidentiality, which I did. And the story and the the reporting in the story then grew from there. Let's back up a little bit. Is this a story about healthcare or is it about Silicon Valley? Because I can see, you know, in healthcare, it's, it's an incredibly complex field. 
It requires lots of specialized knowledge. People operate on trust. There's also a big history of lots of fraud going on. And then also with Silicon Valley, you have the rise of these tech companies, you know, like Theranos is one of them. Which, how do you think it fits in in these two worlds? It, in my view, it's actually, the story is a collision of mm-hmm. Silicon Valley with traditional healthcare. And the Silicon Valley that that I uh, understand it to be is, is really the... Uh, the industry that's a descendant of the uh, microprocessing industry mm-hmm. that, that was pioneered in the 50s and 60s, which you know Silicon Valley derives its name from, which later morphed into the personal computer industry, into the software industry, into, in the late 90s, the internet boom, and today, uh, startups like Uber, um, you know, who, who enable you to, to hail a, a taxi just from a smartphone app. That's the traditional Silicon Valley, and then there is a cluster north of there in South San Francisco, which is the biotech cluster, companies like Genentech, which are doing real uh, medical science. But people usually don't refer to the South San Francisco cluster as Silicon Valley. And I think one one of Elizabeth Holmes' enormous mistakes was to model herself after the traditional Silicon Valley and after really the computer industry. Her idol was Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. She, she idolized him to the point that she uh, took to dressing like him and wearing a black turtleneck. And later when she uh, hired an advertising firm to, to launch a marketing campaign for Theranos, she hired the same firm that Apple had hired for some of its iconic campaigns. Mm-hmm. And when she found out that Steve Jobs liked to meet with that firm on Wednesdays, she chose that <laughs> day of the week. As, as the day that they would meet as well. So she was absolutely fascinated with Steve Jobs, and she really wanted to become the second coming of Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and, and lost sight uh, of the fact that her product was not a software app or a computer. It was a medical product. It was a, a blood testing device that people would rely on to make crucial medical decisions. She, I mean, Holmes is kind of... You read the book, and she's an enigmatic figure. Obviously, she didn't cooperate with you. What's your What's your read on her? It's you know, I I finished the book, and I'm like, I still don't know exactly who she was or what she was thinking during I mean, this entire process. That's an enduring object of fascination for me too, and I think it's the reason why so many people are remain fascinated with the story. It's the question of what was she thinking? What is going on in her mind? And as I document, uh, you know, pretty forensically in the book, um, it's undeniable that she's a liar. I mean, she lies pretty much from day one. I have a a scene in the prologue where um, her chief financial officer at the time, back in 2006, confronts her after learning that the demos uh, that they're staging for prospective investors are partly fake and tells her, you know, we can't be doing this anymore. And she fires him on the spot. She doesn't want to hear it. And you see her throughout the book and throughout the 15-year history of the company lying more and more, and the lies get bigger and bigger uh, to the point that um, she raises money in the last round on the basis of having gone live with the blood tests in Walgreens stores. And, And in fact, the blood tests, most of them were just being run on commercial analyzers, and the few that were being done on uh, Theranos technology were flawed and, and were not reliable. And, and so it got to a point where her, her promises, the, the gap between her promises and the reality of where her technology was got so enormous that it amounted to one giant lie and to one giant fraud. Yeah, the, other, the other thing, I mean, 
is just how people, it seemed like they wanted to be deceived. I mean, you brought up the point. I, I had a similar sort of thing. It was just, you don't, you can't go into health, the life sciences with, you know, having biology 101 and then suddenly make, <laughs> make a biotech product. It just doesn't work that way. You know, the average biotech CEO is like 50-something, 60. But there are all these people that seem to be suckered into it and really well-known people. And the other thing I noticed is that a lot of people who were brought into it didn't really have a healthcare background. Right. She, um, she targeted people and, you know, billionaires and billionaire families who were not uh, sophisticated healthcare investors. And, and, you know, they were the type of investor that you would not define as the smart money in Silicon Valley. There are actually quite a few VC firms that specialize in healthcare investments and, and medical technology, and she stay, stayed well clear of them. In terms of people almost wanting to, to fall for her, one of the th things that she did expertly over the course of 15 years is win the backing of someone who was older, more experienced, and who had a prestigious reputation, and then leverage that association. First person she did that with was Channing Robertson, her Stanford engineering professor, who actually accompanied her to some of her pitches to VC firms when she dropped out and she was just a teenager. A couple years later, barely a couple years later, she uh, met Donald L. Lucas, pretty well-known venture capitalist who is known for having groomed uh, Larry Ellison and having helped him take Oracle public. She wrapped Don Lucas around her finger, and he became the chairman of her board and gave her added credibility, enabled her to raise more money. By 2010, 2011, Don Lucas started uh, developing Alzheimer's, and so she pivoted to George Schultz, the mm -hmm. legendary former Secretary of State. And uh, George Schultz is someone who had always been passionate about science. He lives in a, a big house right off the Stanford campus. And um, one day in, in early 2011, he was introduced by someone at Stanford to Elizabeth, and she wowed him with her vision of these painless blood tests off tiny blood samples. And within a few weeks, he was on the board. And then he introduced her to his buddies at the Hoover Institution, the conservative think tank on the mm -hmm. uh, Stanford campus. And that's how she came to meet Henry Kissinger and Sam Nunn and Bill Frist and uh, Bill Perry, who had been a secretary of defense in the Clinton administration. And, and she lured them to her board with grants of stock. And uh, pretty soon she had this unbelievable board of, of you know, larger than life ex-statesmen and and military commanders, which in a way gave her credibility. But if you stop to think about it, it also didn't really make sense because, A, all these guys were, you know, old, and B, not really, you know, Silicon Valley or medical technology, but had zero background mm -hmm. in, in medicine and much less laboratory science and, and blood diagnostics. And so in a way, if you stop to think about that board after first being really impressed with it, you asked yourself the question, wait, this, does this really make any sense? Yeah, the board was actually, I remember I read your first couple of stories and thinking, how, how did I miss this? The board is just, this is not a biotech company's board. You know, two, two of the members are over 90-something. <laughs> Most of them are over the age of 70. And the other thing in your book is just how the lengths that these people went to, like David Boyes, you know, a lawyer who argued before the Supreme Court and, you know, the presidential election, he basically, you know, comes out as just almost ruining his reputation. And then you've got George Schultz as well and the venture capitalist Tim Draper. I mean, they stuck with her 
well after the point. It should have been completely obvious to them that something was completely wrong and they were actually harming their reputations. Right. And Draper is actually uh, standing by her to this day. He was on CNBC a couple of weeks ago, you know, saying that she had done nothing wrong, that she had done really everything she could to make this company a success and that you know, the company's implosion was not her fault, but it was my fault, you know, and he called me a badger and a hyena for continuing to, you know, write about the company and go after her. Essentially, you know, a shoot the messenger attitude. One thing I would say that distinguishes Draper from some of the other guys is Draper invested at a very early stage. He, he was the first guy to cut her uh, a million dollar check when she was 19 years old. And so he invested, you know, at a typical early startup stage where, where you know that the investment is very risky. You know that mm -hmm. nine out of 10 of these companies is not gonna make it. And you hope that it might be the one out of 10 that does make it and becomes a great success. So I would say that uh, Tim Draper was not really defrauded. The, the investors who were defrauded were the Rupert Murdochs and the Betsy DeVosses and the, and the Coxes and the Carlos Slims who put in uh, millions and in some cases tens and hundreds of millions of dollars after the company had gone mm -hmm. live with the blood tests in Walgreens stores, pretending that those tests were based on innovative Theranos technology. Where, where's the saga now? What are you doing now? Right. It's still unfolding in a way. Elizabeth Holmes laid off another 100 employees about a month and a half ago. So the headcount of the company is now down to about 20. And the day that she announced the layoffs, she wrote an email to investors explaining that the company's cash was likely to go down below $3 million by late July, at which point uh, the, the covenants of the loan agreement she had reached with Fortress Investment Group, the private equity firm last year, allow Fortress to go in, seize the assets, and liquidate them. And so uh, it, it looks like a foregone conclusion that Theranos will cease to exist as a going concern by early August. That's one thing that bears watching the other is that in addition to the SEC, which concluded its investigation in March with civil fraud charges against Holmes, which she settled without uh, admitting or denying wrongdoing, there's been a second investigation, a criminal one, by the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco. That's been going on for two and a half years, and my sources tell me it's very advanced and that criminal charges, indictments of both Holmes and her ex-boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, are a distinct possibility. You, you talk about, you know, your sources, and in... in one thing that struck me in the book is just how many sources you had. It seemed like you had so many people in Theranos knew something was wrong. They didn't speak up about it for quite some time. What what do you think was going on there? Obviously, there were some threats, as you, you detail in the book. But Right. I came to learn that the corporate culture of Theranos was one of uh, paranoia, secrecy, and one of intimidation. And, and the guy who epitomized that intimidation was Sonny Balwani, uh, Holmes's boyfriend, who was the president and chief operating officer. And, and he was constantly uh, browbeating people, intimidating them, uh, firing them. Um, and ultimately, uh, people became afraid to speak up. And even after they left, they became afraid to speak up because the other thing you had is you had David Boys as Theranos' outside counsel you know, arguably the most famous and most feared lawyer in America. And, and he, he acted like a scarecrow. Employees were, were terrified that if they spoke to the press or to a regulator that David Boys and his law firm would be coming after them. Mm -hmm. So that really put the fear of God in them. And he came after you as well. And he and his firm came after me um, in, in ways, frankly, that, were, that I had 
you know, never experienced before. Um, that what what I thought was the most inappropriate, because frankly, you know, I'm a reporter and I'm an investigative reporter and I'm a big, big boy and I can take it. But uh, what I thought was beyond the pale was the way that the law firm and the company went after some of my confidential sources after coming to suspect that certain employees were speaking to me. The most egregious example, arguably, is uh, Tyler Schultz, the, the grandson of uh, George Schultz, who was a Theranos board member, who was ambushed by two Boy Schiller attorneys at his grandfather's house in the spring of uh, 2015. And uh, Theranos and, and Boy Schiller put enormous pressure on him to, to sign documents admitting that he had spoken to me, but that he had spoken to me essentially in error that he was too young and too green to possibly have known what he was talking about, um, and also wanting him to name my other sources. And Tyler amazingly withstood this pressure uh, for several months, in part uh, with the help of his parents who paid for attorneys to help him. And thanks to his integrity and his courage, I was able to go to press in, in October of 2015 and you know, expose, expose this fraud and, and uh, break this scandal. So what are you working on now? Are you, you don't have to tell, of course, if it's you know, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, under wraps. I'm about to uh, get started on, on another project that involves Silicon Valley. But as you said, you know, I, I can't really get into it. And, and I would also say that it's an extremely early stage. And so there's no, there's no telling whether it will pan out or not. But I think that I'll continue to report on the Valley. Hope it's as big as this one. Well, nice talking <laughs> to you, Thanks John. very much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. John Carrier's book, Bad Blood, came out May 21st. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow Reuters podcasts on iTunes or SoundCloud. Or better yet, check us out at breakingviews.com.